Welcome to the Be Ruthless Show, where we have the conversations that other people don't, the conversations that other people won't. I'm your host, Sam Ruth, and I'm ready to make a lot of noise and disrupt things ruthlessly. Thanks for being here today. Now let's get to it. Welcome back to the Be Ruthless Show. I'm your host, Sam Ruth, and joining me today is an amazing guest, Jennifer Mariani, who was born and raised in Harar, Zimbabwe. Her chat book, All Forgotten Now, published by Off Topic Publishing, debuts this month. Her poetry has been featured all over in places that I can't pronounce, so I'm skipping this part. <laughs> She's been a guest judge for Off Topic Publishing's monthly poetry contest. Jennifer writes about Africa, both the landscape and being white in post-independent Zimbabwe. She also writes about domestic violence, body image, and eating disorders. She's passionate about sharing her eating disorder recovery with others and is currently working on a poetry collection on the subject. Jennifer currently resides in Calgary, Alberta with her two daughters, three cats, and numerous volumes of Pablo Neruda's poetry. She teaches ballet and her favorite poems are written for her daughters. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. What an amazing story. Tell us in your own words, a little bit more about you and how you got to writing to heal. So I had always written, I started writing as a child. And when I was a child, I wrote fiction mostly because I was a child and it was interesting to me. Um, I was very lucky in that I had a mom who read to me, who gave me the gift of literature, who gave me the gift of words. And my mom had a lot of poetry. And so often if I was sick, she'd sit on the end of my bed. And I remember this beautiful little red hardbound book that she used to read a lot of classics and romantics to me. So, you know, I had an interest in poetry from a young age. And I found as I got older, through my teen years and 20s that I really enjoyed writing poetry. It was a way for me to express myself. At the time, it was just something I did for me. I would have a thought, I would write a poem. And, you know, I just, uh, back in the day, I used to just handwrite them and collect them in a binder. And, um, and in my 20s, I also did some um, blogging about my eating disorder. There's a huge community out there that I found that so I could tell my story and talk about my struggles. I was still really sick at the time. Um, so it was a place to connect with other people and to tell my story and just to write a bit. And then I had my uh, girls in my mid thirties. And after having babies a year apart, I wasn't writing anymore because it was a busy time in my life. And um, I found that I missed it. And uh, when COVID came about here in Calgary and everything shut down, I was laid off from my ballet teaching job. And so I was home with my girls and they were a little bit older. And I thought, you know, I'd really like to revisit writing. Um, I think in my mind, it was something I had to have this time to sit down and focus and do but I no longer had as a mum. And so I've sort of realized as a mum that there are ways to do things. The, the way that the time is divvied up might just be a little bit different. It might be five minutes here or there. It might be 10 if I'm lucky. So I did get back to writing during COVID and I joined a, a group here in Canada on Facebook called Canada Writes. And I found a wonderful community of writers. Um, I started submitting some of my poetry to some literary journals online. Uh, and my poetry was picked up and published in a few places, which was startling to me because I wasn't really expecting that response. And then one of the people that I met through the Canada Rights was Marion Lougheed. She's the editor in chief at Off Topic Publishing. And she saw a poem that had been published by the League of Canadian Poets called Land Lost With My Childhood. And she approached me and said, 
I would like to include that in an anthology I'm doing about people who cross borders. The anthology was called Wanderers. And I said, oh, that would be nice. And then she said, also, would you consider publishing a collection of just your work? And so that was really exciting for me because um, no one had ever offered that before. And I had I was kind of new to the publishing side of poetry and having other people read my work. So that's a little bit about how I'm having a book launch this month, a chat book called All Forgotten Now. So amazing. And it's very similar to most people like myself. We write for ourselves with no idea that there's really other people out there that need to hear it. Exactly, exactly. So you mentioned a few times in your 20s, when you were struggling, you found a group in your 30s, or now when you were writing, you found a group. And I think connection is such a huge, huge piece. But people really deep in a struggle are often afraid of that, and isolate and don't know that there's other people who get it out there. So especially with an eating disorder, how did you find that? Um, well, yeah, it is interesting. I think eating disorders by their nature, you know, they're secretive. Uh, it, you're, 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 you have this horrible cycle that you live in where you're constantly trying to hide your behaviors, you're trying to hide your struggle. You know, I was a functioning adult, I was a professional teacher at a professional school. And, you know, I'm telling my students, you need to eat well, you need to take care of yourself, but I was not able to do that for myself. And so um, it was, interesting to be able to connect through writing about my eating disorder with uh, an online community. I think the web has really just opened up places for connection that maybe before we wouldn't have been able to find. And, you know, I started just doing a little bit of blogging and I found people would be emailing me and contacting me and say, you know, I'm suffering too. And this really resonates with me. And I think some of it was just, um, that way that you could um, connect with somebody else and realize that you're not alone in your suffering. What if they're not doing their own writing that people will see and contact them? I'm thinking of people who don't know where to turn and aren't ready to pick up the phone and say, I need help and make an actual appointment with a professional, but can truly benefit from others going through it. Do they just search eating disorder groups? Um, you know, I don't know. At the time when I was when I was writing, I think there was a sense of support in the community. I would say in some ways, um, a lot of us were still immersed in the eating disorder, struggling, suffering. And so um, whilst it was a place to connect and find somebody who could listen to you and say, you know, I understand that struggle. I have that too. I want healing for you, even if I can't achieve it. I do think that professional help is important. Um, one thing with the eating disorders is we like to read. We like to read memoirs. We like to read everything there is to read about them. We like to read all this online content. And in some ways that can also be triggering in itself. Um, you know, you realize, well, there's other people doing this so I can continue down this path. And you're sort of in this pseudo you know you're sick and you're talking about how you want to get well but you're not actually taking the steps towards it so um you know it's it's one of those double-edged things I think there's a, a lovely sense of connection a lovely sense of support knowing that you're not alone in your suffering that your story resonates with other people and you hear their stories too um but I think I would I would recommend for anybody who is struggling with body image, disordered eating, full-blown eating disorder, you know, certainly get professional help. How did you, as a ballet teacher, keep these two lives completely separate? Because in from my perception, that's a risky 
field for eating disorders, but we all know that they can hit anyone anywhere. Uh, but I just think that you are constantly being watched and in and told all sorts of things. I, I couldn't do ballet. So tell me, how, how did you do it in that environment? I think the environment in itself for somebody who uh, is prone to um, an eating disorder, poor body image, you know, we're highly perfectionistic by nature in the ballet world. It seems to be a personality trait that goes with the territory. I think we're very vulnerable as artists because our body is our tool. So if it is not quite right, it's not that there's something wrong with your tools. There's something wrong with you and you need to fix it. So I think, um, you know, in my mind, I, I thought I was doing a pretty good job of, um, you know, I wasn't hugely outspoken at the time. I think, you know, there were people close to me who knew that I suffered. And obviously, you know, colleagues, students, people could see my weight was yo-yoing. You know, I suffered from anorexia. I suffered from bulimia. There were times in there that I tried to get well and recover. Um, you know, my weight would go up. It would go down. It would go more down. You know, there were comments that would be made by people at work. So I think it was being seen, um, you know, people would talk about what I comment about what I was eating or comment about what I looked like whether it was I was too thin or I was looking voluptuous which is nothing that a ballet teacher wants to hear so you know I think I think in my mind I was doing trying very hard to keep my professional persona at work and keep my suffering separate from that I think when it's your body and it's on view every day even as a teacher in front of mirrors in front of students around colleagues you know, I think the reality is that um, a lot of it can be seen. I can't imagine being around mirrors all the time. <laughs> I, I, and I'm trying to think of someone who doesn't have a body image, dis, like a body image issue, not a disorder, but I don't think any of us look in the mirror and see what other people see. And in my own experience, I can go back to years that I was unhappy with myself. And I look at pictures now and I'm like, my God, I was tiny but you can't see it in the moment. Yeah, I think, and I think that's hard. I think body dysmorphia is something that, you know, whether it's to a greater or lesser degree is something that's very real. I talk to uh, mostly females, my female friends that I speak to, you know, and I think diet culture really growing up in the 80s, um, I think it, it was a huge injustice, this diet culture that everyone just grew up completely immersed in. You know, we saw our mums, you know, going to calisthenics or Slim You Slim or basically like a Weight Watchers sort of thing, um, you know, and no one, no one was worried then about the impact that it was having on young girls. I feel like there wasn't that awareness that there is today. You know, as a mom, I don't comment on my body in front of my children in a negative way. I may not be happy with the weight that I've recovered to, and that's something that is a daily struggle for me to deal with. But, you know, around my children, uh, we talk about how God made bodies, all different shapes, all different sizes. And a body is just a body. It's not, it's neutral. You know, we're looking for that. You know, we're, there's a lot of body positivity out there, which is great. And in some ways I'm looking more just for that body neutrality. Let's just get past. So being hyper-focused on bodies. Amen. Uh, you mentioned diet culture and while it shifted, I feel like it's still I'm a vegetarian and I am constantly mocked playfully, but people poke at what I eat or what I don't eat. Yeah, and yeah. nobody knows how dangerous that can be. Exactly. Exactly. 
I think, and I'm also a vegetarian, uh, happened since I was 12. And um, I remember that there was a lot of pushback from my parents against that. And I grew up uh, where, you know, people ate meat. It just wasn't one of those things that you just woke up and decided you didn't eat animals because it was cruel. It was mocked. I was laughed at. People poked fun at me eating carrots and hummus and that kind of thing. But, you know, I think that's another thing that people have to learn is that we are trying to shift but there's still so much culture uh, culture where it's just acceptable to comment on what people are eating, how much they're eating, what they look like, as opposed to who they are. Um, you know, I remember when I was pregnant and I was trying very hard to be well recovered from my eating disorder and people would touch my body. And I was thinking, you know, people there, there is still, I think we're trying to shift. It's just not happening fast enough. You know, people comment on you and you think um, it, my body is not up for debate my body is not up for commentary my body is my story to tell and you know I think the shift is is there but it's coming really slowly and you mentioned that people would comment if you were too thin I've had clients who are just naturally small and have been teased or picked on or bullied even their entire school time for for being that way and they eat everything to try to gain weight and they can't. So it, it's not just one side or the other, but I think the world is more understanding of being overweight or obese and not eating as opposed to people who are struggling just as much to gain a pound. And it is a struggle for them. Mm -hmm. I, I went to uh, an interesting story about that. I went to a ballet school in England to pursue my ballet teaching career. And I was only 18 when I left. You know, I left my family in Zimbabwe, moved to a different country. I did have family in England, but I was alone in Manchester. I was at ballet school, which was a dream for me. But I was uh, sick with anorexia and bulimia. I also at that point had undiagnosed hypothyroidism. So I was um, bigger than what you would expect a ballet dancer to be, especially somebody who's immersed in an eating disorder. And I just thought to myself, I must not be very good at this. You know, I'm obviously not doing anorexia or bulimia right because I'm not getting any thinner. But I was at school, one of my best friends in my first year was so thin, so waif-like. And she wasn't sick, but everyone was concerned about her. And I remember her being called into the principal's office and them telling her, like, you have to gain weight. We can't have you around here with an eating disorder. And she would say to me, I don't have an eating disorder. And there I was by comparison. I didn't look unwell and I needed help and I needed attention. I was only 18 years old, but nobody looked because, you know, it's one of those things where we worry about people if they're thin and we do have an understanding of you know it's harder to be overweight you got it it's a struggle losing weight but there was so much focus on this friend of mine because she was just so naturally very thin and um you know I think we're also looking for a type we're looking for a body type to identify an eating disorder and we know that eating disorders affect everyone regardless of you know, color, size, it doesn't matter. Um, you know, we can't wait to see somebody being thin before we're ready to say, I think that person's sick. And you, you've said it a few times, you're looking at the body, not at the person or the behavior. So you were struggling, nobody was looking at the inside. 
No. And I was ashamed. I was like, well, I'm not going to tell somebody I have an eating disorder because I'm not getting any thinner, which was kind of the point as a ballet dancer. You know, I mean, there was a lot about anxiety and control. There's a lot of other factors other than just trying to be thin. But I do remember thinking it's kind of embarrassing to tell people that you have an eating disorder when you're actually overweight. That's an interesting piece. But you'll never see yourself accurately. So who, how did, who's the first person you let in? Well, <clears throat> it's hard to say. I think, um, you know, like when I was younger, when I was in my early teenage years, like obviously my parents knew I was unwell. Um, as an adult, it was different. There were, uh, there were a few friends who were close enough to know that I struggled. And I think I sort of downplayed it because, you know, I didn't want them to think I was crazy. Didn't want them to think my life was out of control. <laughs> didn't want them to think I needed some kind of intervention or help. Um, I did go to something in my 30s called Freedom Session uh, through my church, which is kind of like an AA um, where you can take any addiction that you have and work through it there. And I thought, well, you know, it's probably time to work on this eating disorder. And I met uh, a very good friend actually through that program. I did not continue the program I dropped out of it it wasn't for me for many reasons and um, uh, this friend was somebody who was probably the first adult friend who got to see all the facets of my eating disorder you know I'd had boyfriends I'd had partners and they knew there was something wrong with me they knew I wasn't well they would ask questions like you know were you throwing up like why aren't you eating? But I never spoke to them about it. So I think this girlfriend was probably the person who really got to know all the ugly, gruesome details. She had also suffered with an eating disorder. Um, she was at the group with binge eating disorder. She'd had anorexia when she was younger. So I think there was some kinship there. I felt like, you know, she was one of my people. She understood. So I could tell her all the ugly, disgusting, shameful side of my eating disorder and she wouldn't judge me. And I think that's the thing, you know, you don't, you don't want to tell people, you don't want them judging you. Are you crazy? It's gross. You know, like, you know, it's, it's very hard, shameful kind of secret that you keep. And you started, you met her by going to your church, which is a place you felt safe. So anyone listening, who in your life, who in your current, you know, you don't have to reach out to somebody new that's a complete stranger. What support do you have that you might feel safe taking that first baby step? So even though it didn't work, you still got something extremely meaningful out of it. And I'm assuming she's still in your life. She is still in my life. She is godmother to my youngest daughter. Um, she's still in my life. She's a wonderful friend. And, you know, she really did help me when um, I got her. She, she encouraged me to see my doctor and get a referral to the Calgary Eating Disorders Program. And I really you know, in your, in your mind, sometimes you want to be well, you want to enjoy your life. I knew I wanted to have children at some point and uh, I knew it was affecting me negatively, you know, and, and it was affecting my work life. It was affecting my home life. It was affecting my health very badly. And so she encouraged me to get this referral. She said, you know, it will take time. You've got time to think about it. And then I, I wanted to back out of going to the, um, they did kind of like an informational session and she came with me, like literally held my hand, 
sat with me because I didn't want to go. And I was, I was very childish and very moody and very sort of like, I don't want to be here, you know? And um, so, yeah, this was somebody who was willing to actually walk down the road of recovery with me, which is a very special thing to have. Um, I'm not sure if it's because she herself had an eating disorder. Um, she's a mental health nurse by trade. So she has a really you know, deep understanding of these things. And I do think, you know, at other points in my life, I could have opened up to a colleague, I could have opened up to other friends, I have a lot of people who are kind, loving friends, and I could have said to them, you know, I'm really struggling, and I don't know what to do. And I think there may have been more people who would have been willing to help, but she was the right person at the right time. Absolutely. A lot of my clients' parents could be listening, and they have big fears about having a child with an eating disorder interact with another child with an eating disorder. Yeah. They don't see that potential for the help and connection that you, they worry that it could be the opposite ideas of how to not eat and not get all of those things. So how can we bridge that? I, there is that risk. I'm not going to minimize that it happens, but the connection of somebody who gets it, nobody else can give them that. You know, that again is one of those really hard, it's got the, it's the two sides of the coin. You know, I remember when I was uh, younger, when I first started um, uh, with anorexia, I was friends with the girls that I danced with uh, in my studio and they talked about what they ate or that they threw up or, you know, any connection about the eating disorder was really um, is that that trading of information so that you learned how to do it and how to do it better and how to do it well. So it is one of those things that I think um, is difficult. I think you need a lot of help on all sides there. But, you know, people also don't want to feel alone. They do want that connection. They do want somebody who understands what they're going through. Um, and I would say it's one of those things that I don't know who would monitor that if parents would have to monitor that depending on the children's age, if um, whoever's helping with the professional treatment would have to monitor that. Um, we, we need connection, we need support, we need someone in our life who understands. When I found my friend, I was already in my early 30s. Um, we were adults and, you know, she just said to me, I'll support you. She's like, whether you're not eating or you're eating and throwing up or, but along the way, she just kept encouraging me to get help. And when I would say things like, I don't believe that there, you can actually recover from this. I think this is just a lifelong thing that you manage. Sometimes it's better, sometimes it's worse. You know, she would always just say, I'm holding hope for you. If you That's can't- That's hugely that important to anybody listening that might be struggling, even if it's, even if you're just counting calories, but it's consuming you. Yeah. There is a genuine fear that if you get help, you'll be forced to gain weight. And she, said, don't worry about that. We just want people to reach out and not go through things alone. And there is a fear that we are going to give you a nutritional plan that you must monitor. Uh, it's not that way, is it? You know, it's not. I would say, um, I would say it's different when we're looking at younger ch children. I would say anyone under the age of 18, we know um, that the sooner an eating disorder is treated, the higher the, the chance of recovery, the longer it goes on, the harder it is. Um, and we also know that there's a greater chance of success the sooner that somebody gets help or treatment. So, and I think, you know, when it does come to um, what I would term children, young people, I would say they probably need 
more medical intervention, um, particularly if their if their health or well being is at stake, um, and that's a hard thing. Um, you know, sometimes it's sometimes it's a little gentler than that, depending on on where you are. I know when I went to eating disorder treatment. Um, as an adult, which was the first time I'd actually gone to an eating disorder treatment program in my life. I'd seen counselors, various counselors, a lot of them very unhelpful. Um, mm -hmm. And this was really, obviously, this is a program designed for eating disorders, you know, and I wasn't put, I wasn't put in a program, I wasn't in a stay, I wasn't in, you know, they did have a, a nutritionist I could speak to, they had somebody who would go shopping with me if I needed help going to get clothes in a different size, you know, I got pregnant. And um, that was really the main catalyst for recovering from my eating disorder. And I was upset about the fact that I needed a different bra size. And so they had somebody who would go and support you in doing that. And you know, those kind of things are really wonderful along the way, you have the option, somebody who will come with you and help you with something that's difficult. Um, and yeah, so it's not all hospitalization and feeding tubes and, you know, nutritional plans. I think that is um, when somebody is in some kind of medical distress and those kind of interventions are necessary sometimes. Absolutely. But when it comes to finding who you work with, there are different approaches and finding somebody, somebody that aligns with your beliefs, with your hopes for recovery is really important. I am never going to tell somebody they must eat broccoli. If you don't want broccoli, don't, you know, I'm not, but there are people who might. So yeah. um, even just finding that person to help you find the right person. Yes. And, you know, I think that is it. It has to be the right time. It has to be the right person. I had gone and seen some other counselors or therapists at some time in my life um, to find some help. And maybe because of my insurance, they weren't necessarily an eating disorder therapist or counselor. And so, you know, I remember sitting in an office with a man that my insurance company found me and no disrespect to men he did not understand at all what I was going through. And his suggestion was that every hour I practiced some breathing exercises. And I remember leaving there thinking that was more trauma than it was worth. You know, I, I sometimes I'm worried that this eating disorder might kill me. And his approach is that, you know, because I'm anxious and highly strung and um, experiencing distress that I'm controlling with an eating disorder, I should sit and breathe every hour on the hour, which I can't necessarily do when I'm teaching ballet, you know? And it's a great tool. I use it all the time, but not when somebody's coming in a crisis and, and looking for something else. So that is also part of the problem. People have however many bad experiences before they find the right person, but you are entitled to say, I want a female. I want somebody who's been through this or who has a family member who's been through this. So I I feel like they understand my language. You have all of that. You can say you want somebody tall. I, you know, really it's up to you. So that's what I help a lot of people while they're looking understand is that we don't just decide you're interviewing them. And I don't think the world understands that yet. Yeah. And, you know, I wish when I was younger in my twenties that I, I had said, called my insurance company back and said, you know, this person is not a good fit. Yes, I get six covered sessions with them or eight covered sessions. But, um, you know, if I'm in some kind of 
crisis telling me to breathe is not great. And maybe there is somebody out there who is more specialized in eating disorders or who has more understanding of it. So I think that is the thing that at some point you are advocating for your own health and you have to find that person that fits for you and, you know, for everybody that's going to be different. And you said it's not a linear, it's reminding me of grief. It's not a linear, you work through these things and then poof, all gone. It's, it's still something you struggle with internally. Yeah. You know, I struggle every day. I've been well now for in this October will be seven years. So six and a half years. And every day I have the struggle. Um, I still have, I have constant thoughts from the eating disorder. I have a lot of, um, you know, I still have body image issues and I eat well. I take care of myself. I move in a way that feels good to me. I no longer exercise obsessively. So if I feel like gentle movement, that's what I do. And if I don't want to move, I don't move because movement for me used to be one of those things that had to be done. So I do all the things to take care of myself. It doesn't mean I don't struggle um, with the other things. I, th I think that's also important because I, I do want people to know that it's not a magic pill or anything. You can't just snap your fingers and, and have it gone. It is no. something you have to work through ongoing. Yeah, I think that is the thing is, is it's ongoing. And, you know, I think you can get some very intensive support or treatment um, at different times. And I think for a lot of people, maybe they need a care plan going forward, you know, like once they've moved out of that or, you know, just even realizing that maybe it's been a couple of years and you've done well, but maybe it's time to go back and speak to somebody again or to to get more help to get more support just because you know it is a it's something that again it's lonely you know i don't necessarily say to anybody oh you know i had these thoughts today i'm really struggling with my body image i'm really struggling with my weight i'm really struggling with how i feel and you know this thought keeps coming back to me again you know i think you have to be very aware and you have to stay on top of it because it is a very slippery slope i often say that you know we take our cars in for tune-ups we have to charge things so the batteries don't run out and that we need to do the same things for the inside so if you ever would reach out to somebody and say i'm struggling i'm having these thoughts that's such progress because people can then be there for you mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's these invisible things that no one knows we're dealing with yes and i think and i think that's the thing and i think you know we do have to have that awareness just when we're talking to people, you know, that's why I'm, I'm so interested in, in people just having awareness and being more educated on it. You know, you don't make comments about what people look like because you don't know what they're struggling with. Or what they're eating for that matter. I mean, you say it to somebody who has a struggle, you have no idea what they go through after. So yeah. I can play it off, but it's really kind of annoying that the whole world makes fun of vegetarians, right? There's a lot of people, I just don't like meat doesn't agree with me. I've never liked it. Doesn't make me a bad person. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is interesting. I, I, I've been a vegetarian since I was 12. I'll be 40 this year. And it was one of those things that, yeah, it's just, I don't know why it's such a free for all, you know, on, on vegetarians. It's such a strange, it's such a strange thing. You know, if somebody says to you, I don't like Brussels sprouts, you don't make fun of them because, you know, I also don't like Brussels sprouts. I am <laughs> a vegetarian and there are some vegetables that are not my favorite. Really? Who knew? <laughs> Does the writing help? Is that one of your tools? Or is that just part, you've always been a writer and, and you choose to write about things that are difficult? 
No, I would say the writing helps for me. It's that process of, um, of dealing with whatever it is that I'm feeling, whatever it is that I'm going through, a way for me to, you know, unravel all the, the threads of whatever it is. And, you know, life is complex. There's a lot, there's a lot going on. You know, last year my dad died and I found that writing was a way for me to, you know, deal with that grief. And it wasn't for anybody else. It was for myself. I wrote a lot of poems on death. I wrote a lot of poems on dying um it brought up a lot of um things from my childhood that I wanted to go back and and look at so I do find that writing is very helpful I've been working on um a collection of poetry about uh eating disorders and before I had always thought well if I wrote about eating disorders it would have to be a memoir or a you know and I thought well that, that I, that's not the kind of writer that I am and it never crossed my mind that I could write in the genre that I write in but about eating disorders I'm sorry about your dad Thanks. um there's there's no words but I love that that getting it out is being addressed because I think when we keep anything in whatever it is it stews and it festers and it isn't healthy so if people listening aren't ready to make that step and talk to anybody, you can give writing a shot. You can burn it. You can tear it up. Nobody has to read it. Um, but I would love if you'd be willing to share one of the poems for the, the book that's coming out. Anybody listening on the 18th? Yeah, so this uh, this book that's coming out right now is called All Forgotten Now, and this book in particular is a collection of poetry um, based around Zimbabwe, which is where I was born, where I was raised, and this book, this collection in itself is dealing with, you know, the grief and loss of leaving home. Uh, I termed it self-imposed exile from my homeland, which was experiencing a lot of political turmoil when I left, and um, it's, it's, uh, it, it goes back through my memories of home. Um, there's places in the poetry where I talk about the racism and the poverty that happened in Zimbabwe. And um, uh, as the book progresses, the kind of arc of it changes and it's more about trying to belong somewhere else. Uh, I have chosen to settle here in Canada and I've had my children here in Canada. So um, there's a lot of grief and a lot of loss explored in the poem, but I'm gonna read you uh, a poem that's more about uh, how I I have come to have a different connection to the land that I've chosen to settle in because I've had children here and because my children belong here how does that change my sense of belonging so the poem that I'm going to read is from a collection of poetry for my children called star and song these mountains are not mine but they belong to my children they will hear the valleys and the rivers call to them as I do not they will yearn for this Arctic sun as I for an African one, and they will call this land home, though I will never rest here. They will hear the singing voices of these people as I hear in my heart the songs of dirt roads and Bougainvillea and September skies lost to me. My children will stand firm upon this land, and when they belong to it, I will remember that I belong to them, and I am entirely at home when their faces shine on me. So beautiful. Thank you for sharing with everyone. And that touched me. I just told you before we started recording that I moved recently, but I moved from Michigan to Colorado in 2014. And nobody knows the struggle that goes with leaving home. And I didn't leave the country, but this is the first place I've lived since then that feels like home. I just said that this morning. So that touched me deeply. <laughs> Thank you. How can people connect with you? 
and learn more and get the book? So the best way to connect with me is through the publisher's website. So I'll send you links for that. It is called offtopicpublishing.com forward slash books will take you to the pre-order page. The book is available as a chat book um, and it's also available as an ebook. So that's a really easy way to get a copy of it. We are launching on the 18th. Um, there is contact information for me on the publisher's website. We also have an Instagram off topic publishing, uh, which I'm on a lot. So there's ways to connect with me that way. We'll put all of that in the show notes. And what if somebody connected with your journey? What if somebody wants to reach out with an eating disorder or a question, not necessarily about poetry? Um, you know, they can also send that. I have um, the contact at offtopicpublishing.com email address. So they're welcome to contact me that way. And they can reach out about anything, you know, whether it's connecting with the poetry about home or they want to talk about eating disorder or the writing process, um, you know, welcome to email me that way. And the con that's contact at offtopicpublishing.com. And again, I'll put all of that in the show notes, or you can reach out to me if you can't find it. Any final thoughts for everyone listening? Um, you know, I think that you, I would say, find ways to cope with where you are in life. Um, and whether that's writing, whether that's art, whether whatever it is that that is an outlet for for what you're going through and find people that you can connect with, because there are people out there who love you and who care for you. And there are people there who will, uh, who won't judge you, who will take you by the hand and say, I'll help you down this road. Thank you so much for sharing your story and your time with us. Cannot wait for the release on the 18th. Please let me know how I can support that. And until next time, everyone listening, always be ruthless. Thanks so much for listening today. Your support means everything to me, truly. If this podcast resonates with you, please do me a favor and join in the ruthless movement by making some noise and doing one of these four things. Subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Tell a friend so we can break stigmas even faster. Leave a review so people can see what you think of the show. And last, if you want to learn more about me and be a part of the Grief Hub community, please head on over to the Facebook group. We'd love to have you. Thanks again for spending your time with us and see you next week. Bye.